0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Susan L. Lindquist, PhD of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 29, 2011.
1: Well, it's it's a real honor and a pleasure to introduce uh, Susan Lindquist to this audience. She obtained her uh, doctoral degree from Harvard University, although we don't hold that against her, and uh, she was Alaska professor of the Medical Science at the University of Chicago before she moved to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 2001. She's been a member of the Whitehead Institute there, and she served as director from 2001 to 2004. Her, Her research focus has been on protein folding, and she's really led this field into multiple new directions. Uh, She's shown that protein conformational changes are critical in a range of uh, effects, cellular stress, evolution, transmission of traits, and most recently, neurodegeneration, which I think is going to be the focus today. In one of these lines of work, uh, in terms of uh, the role in phenotypic variation and evolution, she showed specifically that HSP90 can buffer silent polymorphisms, and when that function is lost, these can be manifest and be selected, and uh, genetic diversity can be evolutionarily advanced. She's also shown that HSP40 can be involved in clearing protein aggregates. In terms of transmission of traits, uh, she's also made groundbreaking discoveries, the second whole line of work. There had been the idea of protein confirmation transmission of traits, but it was Dr. Lindquist's studies that really using yeast genetics that brought this home and provided the most convincing evidence uh, that protein conformations can transform uh, without nucleic acids. Finally, in the last decade, she's focused on neurodegenerative disease, which I think she's going to talk about primarily today. There had been a lot of evidence that protein folding matters, but how this affects the cell and how it makes cells sick hadn't been clear. It's her ability to harness yeast genetics to reduce this problem to single cells that has really made tractable advances, and I think has the promise for the next century of research uh, making real inroads in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, beyond. She's won a number of honors, um, Dixon Prize, the Otto Warburg Prize, Max Delbruck Medal, the U.S. National Medal of Science, and she's a member of the National Academy. So let's welcome Susan Lindquist.
0: Thank you so much, and I want to uh, thank everyone involved with this symposium for inviting me because it's just been absolutely fantastic, and I want to thank the previous speakers for a wonderful set of talks. So I, I work on a variety of different problems involving protein folding, and we haven't given up the Hsp90 or prion stuff yet, even though we've started this. Um, and basically the, the problem of protein folding is that every protein has to fold into these Incredibly complicated very very specific structures and each protein folds into a different structure And they have to do that in an environment. That's just absolutely absurd. Yeah, they have to do that inside of a living cell And the reason why it's absurd is that the concentration of other proteins in that cell is just staggering It's about 300 milligrams per mil. It's about the same concentration as uh, the concentrations of proteins and packed crystals the crystallographers used to study structures but of course, the proteins inside of a living cell are not static. They're moving around at actually incredible speeds. They're bumping into each other all the time. And so getting a protein, an extended polypeptide chain folded properly, and, uh, and uh, maintaining those folds when they're colliding with each other with incredible kinetic energy is really a very, very difficult, difficult problem. And so when you think about proteins going about their business inside of a living cell, It's very much not like Esther Williams and her
1: mermaids.
0: (laughs) It's much more like the wave pool at the Summerland Amusement Park on a really hot, summer day <laughs> so just imagine <laughs> if, if a little bit more kinetic energy were put into that system for example with the heat shock or uh, if a little bit of the water was taken out of that system for example with an osmotic stress or if some of the individuals in that that sea were not really uh, as strongly structured as other individuals. You can imagine it would lead to a crisis in a hurry. And in fact, that's happening in cells all the time. Living systems are poised on a protein folding crisis. And the reason why they do that is that there's there's tremendous efficiencies to be gained from having proteins so closely packed together. You can pass electrons from one protein to another. but they pay a very high price for that, because there's, there's constantly this danger of proteins going off pathway and proteins misfolding. And in fact, we now understand that many, many human diseases are caused by problems in protein misfolding. And, and thinking about them that way might provide a line of attack for us. Um, and so we've been studying this protein folding problem for, for quite a long time. And finally decided that, well, maybe we ought to tackle some of the human protein folding diseases. And these are just some of the diseases that that involve protein misfolding. These happen to all be neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, Things like frontal temporal dementia, ALS, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, Prion diseases, and they're all caused by the misfolding or appear to be caused by the misfolding of different individual proteins in these different diseases. And so because we started to learn quite a bit about protein folding, we thought, well, maybe we should try to tackle these. Because the devastation that these misfolding processes wrought in a living human brain is just staggering. Um, it's, it's any of you who this picture speaks for itself, but I'm sure most of you who have uh, met or encountered people with this disease or had the misfortune of having your loved ones suffer from it will understand why we really need to tackle this diseases, And especially as our population is getting older and older, and perhaps I especially wanted to look at it as I started contemplating myself getting older and older. Um, I, I really wanted to think that maybe we could, we could start working on this. And the idea was to try using yeast cells these are typical yeast cells. They're budding yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, as a sort of a living test tube to study these complicated protein folding problems. And uh, if your attitude is like these folks here, <laughs> you're you're not alone because this is very much the attitude we faced when we first proposed this. I had a very 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 hard time getting any funding for this. I had a hard time getting anyone to work on it in my laboratory. But um, as Mike today made a statement to encourage uh, people to uh, continue working in the the face of of otherwise discouraging events, um, the the student who tackled this has really uh, first started to tackle this in my lab and has now led to many other people who've been willing to take it on, has actually found that, in fact, when we take these proteins into a yeast cell, they misfold and they're toxic. But they don't just cause a nonspecific generalized protein aggregation toxicity. In fact, the kinds of toxicities we get for each of these proteins is very specific for each of those proteins, and it depends upon where that protein is misfolding and what other types of proteins it's interacting with when it misfolds. And the things we find in these yeast models of neural neural pathological processes, actually both genetics and compounds that we find matter to neurons that are suffering from the misfolding of these same proteins in very specific ways, and in fact connect up with all sorts of aspects of human diseases, both in terms of the the toxins, the nature of the toxins that can be associated with these neurodegenerative diseases, and the human disease alleles that uh, are associated with these diseases. So the reason, of course, for doing anything in a yeast cell is uh, one, there's two. And one of them is that yeast cells are eukaryotic cells. Neurons are too. (laughs) Neurons are very, very fancy eukaryotic cells, but they're eukaryotic cells. And all of these things are very, very highly conserved in yeast and in neurons. Lipid biology, vesicle trafficking, infusion, and the ways in which that's regulated, lysosomes and peroxisomes, autophagy, apoptosis, complicated cell cycle, mitochondria and oxidative stress, and of course, a whole realm of proteins that are involved in taking care of that problem I told you about, the protein folding problem. And the cell actually devotes about 5% of total protein in the cell to taking care of this problem. And It involves chaperones, it involves uh, proteasomes, it involves ubiquitin ligases, it involves um, uh, autophagy and osmolites and all sorts of of mechanisms. Anyway, these are very, very highly conserved from yeast cells to neurons. the other reason for wanting to work with yeast is that it has an absolutely unrivaled toolkit. I mean, there's a lot of great things we can do with mice now and nematodes and fruit flies, but believe me, there is no organism on the planet we can manipulate as well or as fastly as we can yeast cells. And in fact, the amount of information we have on protein-protein interactions and genetic interactions is, is unrivaled. And furthermore, they're single cells. Now that may seem like a really crazy thing to think of as an advantage when studying a neurological pathology. But I'll tell you why I think it's a very big advantage. Neurons are talking to each other, and are talking to glial cells and their support systems all the time. It's talk, 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 talk. And their, inter- their interactions with each other are profoundly influencing them. And so if you want to try to actually study the fundamental underlying process that's responsible for these diseases, And we have no therapies, not one, currently aimed at the fundamental underlying problems that are going around with these proteins. Um, If you want to try to study that, it would be nice maybe to isolate all of the complexities of these interactions with other proteins and other, uh, sorry, other neurons and other cell types, and just really look at the problem of that particular protein in an individual isolated cell. So I'm going to start, I'm going to tell you about two of these pathologies that we've been looking at. One is uh, involved with synuclein, and the other is A-beta. The synuclein work we've published uh, most of, although we have a lot more stuff that I'm, that I'm not going to tell you about that we, that hasn't published. But uh, the, the A-beta story has, has been submitted, but not yet published. So the synucleinopathies uh, are varied. Parkinson's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies, and multiple systems atrophy. Um, and they're all characterized when you slice through a brain, as I showed you those sections of uh, pathologist slides earlier, those brown blobs that were protein aggregates. Well, these synuclein aggregates can occur in different cell types, and when they occur in different cell types, they're associated with different diseases. Uh, But certainly, the one that we know the most about and the one that is the most common is Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's is really a spectrum of disorders. It's um, the second most common neurodegenerative disorder. And it's particularly characterized by the loss of particular types of dopaminergic neurons, which lead to severe motor defects and and more. Uh, But it's now appreciated that the pathology is is broader than just the dopaminergic neurons. It's been a bewildering, it's a very complex and bewildering disease, because there are a lot of associations with environmental toxins, such as, for example, manganese. Miners of the metal manganese get get PD twice as often as miners of other metals. And drug, recreational drug users, uh, where the manganese is contaminated the drugs, have, have uh, gotten the disease. And there's also a variety of mitochondrial poisons that are associated <coughs> with, with PD, or at least Parkinsonism. And then there are many different genetic factors that contribute, and these are called PARC loci, and they're being elaborated uh, uh, more and more all the time. And many of these diseases, even though they're associated with different genetic lesions, when people go to autopsy, they see uh, Lewy bodies or this alpha-synuclein aggregation. Not not by any means in all of them, however. And finally, PARC1, the first Parkinsonism uh, allele, is a protein called alpha-synuclein, which is in those aggregates. And uh, it was also found that mutation of alpha-synuclein or ampl- simple amplification of the wild-type protein is sufficient to cause early-onset Parkinsonism. Now these are this one is a relatively rare cause of, of PD. This one is not so rare, but still the very fact that this particular protein is aggregated in, these disease, in this disease with all these different environmental and genetic causes and the simple overexpression of that wild-type protein is sufficient to cause the disease in humans Um, made us think that it might be worth trying to overexpress that protein in the yeast cell and see what happened. And we were encouraged by another thing um, with regard to trying this, and that is that alpha-synuclein is a very simple little protein. It's not that like the lurk kinase, which some of you may know is also involved with PD, which is a very complicated multi-domain protein. Alpha-synuclein is 14 kilodalton little tiny protein that folds into four alpha helixes, it associates with phospholipids and, and membranes. And when it's not associated with membranes, it's, prone to, it's natively unfolded, and it's prone to forming oligomers and larger polymers. And uh, these are believed to be the toxic species, and, and especially the oligomers, although don't take this structure as being serious. It's just an imaginary structure. But the oligomeric forms of the protein that um, accumulate when the natively folded protein is not associated with membrane are believed to be part of the toxicity. So we put alpha-synuclein stitched up to a green fluorescent protein on a very easily regulated promoter in yeast so we can normally keep it off and turn it on whenever we want to. And when we put in two copies of that gene in the yeast cell, uh, it goes to the plasma membrane. And that's great. That was just what we expected it to do, because in human neurons, it's localized to vesicles at the ends of synapses. And one difference between yeast and neurons, and there are, I will admit, quite a few, um, is that in yeast cells, secretion process is constitutive. So if alpha-synuclein was getting onto secretory vesicles in a yeast cell, what we would expect it to do is just wind up on the plasma membrane. So if we express a little bit more alpha-synuclein, or a little bit more alpha-synuclein, the localization of the protein changes profoundly. And the viability of the cells changes profoundly. So these cells grow perfectly normally, these cells grow slowly, and these cells die. And so that provides us very immediately with a platform for doing genetic screens. And in collaboration with Josh Leber, who did almost all of the work, we just helped him finish making a library of the yeast genome, that contains every open reading frame of the yeast genome under the control of the same promoter that we use to induce alpha-synuclein. And we like this library a little bit better. Many of you may be familiar with the yeast deletion library, and that's a great, that's been a great system, too. But the yeast deletion library is a bunch of strains that have been coping with deletions of various proteins for a long times, and all kinds of changes have taken place in those cells. With this overexpression library, what happens is we um, transform a cell that has a moderately toxic level of alpha-synuclein, with uh, each one of these plasmids, assemble a library of of strains that contain those different plasmids, and then we husband them on glucose so the cells aren't experiencing anything, any change. And only when we transfer them to galactose does the alpha-synuclein gene and the other gene turn on at the same time. And so we can test how very cleanly how that gene modifies the toxicity of alpha-synuclein looking for either enhancers or suppressors. And so, um, more recently we've gotten robots that allow us to do this much more efficiently and this is how our current screens are looking. These are uh, 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 robots that have printed our various yeast strains onto media and these cells are not induced and they're growing just fine. These cells are induced and they're growing more slowly. And what you'll see is there are groups of four here, and that's because we test every gene four times, and it gives us much more reliable results. So we print every single, all four of these strains contain the same test plasmid. All four of these strains contain the same test plasmid. And this is clearly an enhancer of toxicity. It makes things worse, and this is a suppressor of toxicity. So then, of course, the things we get out, uh, we have to test in a neuronal system. And we have tested them in three different systems. We've tested them in uh, C. elegans in collaboration with Guy Caldwell, in Drosophila uh, with, in collaboration with Nancy Bonini, and in primary rat embryonic midbrain cultures uh, in collaboration with Chris Roche, although we now have this up and running in my own lab. And we are beginning what I think is going to be a very uh, exciting collaboration with Rudolf Yanisch to trans late our things into human iPS cells derived from patients because these diseases are very complicated. There are a lot of different underlying genetic factors. And I think for any gene disease that's going to need personalized medicine, I think this is a, is a real poster child. Anyway, um, do our genes that we got out of a yeast cell that have conserved homo- human homologs actually matter to a neuron expressing um, alpha-synuclein? And so I'm just going to tell you that the very first gene we got out that that uh, that had a very strong effect was a Rab GTPase that's involved in controlling vesicle trafficking, and it controls vesicle trafficking from the Golgi to the ER. And there's a very closely related uh, Rab GTPase that in neurons neurons have more of these things than yeast cells do that in neurons controls uh, vesicle trafficking at the end of the synapse. And so I'm going to just tell you that this RAB1 worked in nematodes and it worked in fruit flies. I'll just show you the results with rat primary cortical, uh, not primary cortical, primary dopaminergic neurons, neurons from the midbrain region of the embryonic rat that were put into culture. And um, we get a rough sense of how many dopaminergic neurons there are in in these cultures by staining with TH. And uh, in these cultures, we typically get about 7% of the neurons are dopaminergic neurons. And when we express alpha-synuclein, and here we're expressing a mutant that's associated with early onset PD, um, it kills actually lots of the neurons in the the culture. But it kills the dopaminergic neurons even more frequently than it kills other neurons. And so the percentage of the dopaminergic neurons goes down. And if we co-express LacZ with that, it has no effect. But if we co-express that RAB1 GTPAs, it has a pretty strong rescuing effect in these neurons, as, as well as it did in yeast. We also see changes in vesicle trafficking, and in fact, subsequent experiments, uh, I'll show you, we we find that we can directly assess the effects of alpha-synuclein on vesicle trafficking. So we've done this now with nine different genes which have uh, very diverse functions, so functions that you wouldn't necessarily think would be connected, but they're clearly connected because they modulate the toxicity that's caused by overexpressing alpha-synuclein. And eight out of those nine genes that we tested from our yeast screen and tested in the neuronal system have worked. So I mentioned that vesicle trafficking seemed to be particularly sensitive. And in fact, when we looked at our yeast cells that were accumulating alpha-synuclein and where it was accumulating in a toxic state, we started to see vesicles being blocked, but they were not fusing with the target membranes. And Virginia Lee uh, actually has done autopsies on human patients with PD now. And she's seen that, in fact, the Lewy bodies are associated with a lot of trapped uh, vesicles. So what does alpha-synuclein do in vesicle trafficking? Well, Charlie Barlow has this wonderful assay in which he isolates ER. And he can examine vesicle budding. And in the addition of cellular factors, he can examine docking infusion by the fact that when the vesicles dock, the proteins get modified. And so we collaborated with Charlie and found that in fact what alpha-synuclein does is it doesn't interfere with vesicle budding at all, in fact if anything it stimulates it, but when it comes to vesicle uh, fusion with a target membrane, it completely blocks it and in fact alpha-synuclein is associated with that focus of blocked vesicles. When I showed you in those earlier cells those big kind of green bowling balls of of, uh, GFP labeled alpha-synuclein, When you look at those by electron microscopy, they're blocked vesicles with high concentrations of alpha-synuclein surrounding them. So alpha-synuclein causes problems specifically in vesicle trafficking and at specific stages of vesicle trafficking. Um, We've also found one of the genes that we found that suppresses the alpha-synuclein toxicity was annotated in the yeast genome as being yeast open reading frame 291W. Uh, not very informative because nobody even in yeast knew what this was doing. But it was of interest to us because we found that it is very, very highly homologous to a human protein. And moreover, about six months after we found it in yeast, this paper was published published that hereditary Parkinsonism with dementia is caused by mutations in that protein. And it encodes a lysosomal protein that's uh, a P-type ATPase. It's at the lysosome. It's in a different place from the alpha-synuclein in the cell, and there would have been no reason from the human data to connect it up with alpha-synuclein toxicity. But we find it as a suppressor. When we overexpress this function, we find it as a suppressor of alpha-synuclein toxicity. We are able then, and I'll spare you uh, the details, we are able then to find that this protein, what it's doing, is it's a p-type ATPase, and what it's doing is it's pumping manganese. And it pumps manganese into the vacuole to get to reduce the cellular concentrations of manganese. This is very interesting because remember I told you earlier that there's been associations between manganese toxicity and Parkinsonism. And um, interestingly, we had 60 metal ion transporters in our screen. We got out three metal ion transporters that suppressing the alpha or inter, one was an enhancer, one two were suppressors of alpha-synuclein toxicity. All three of them are manganese transporters. One of them transports manganese and calcium into the ER and affects Golgi trafficking. And another one of them uh, affects, uh, transports manganese and iron. And all three of those metals have had a very interesting history of associations with Parkinsonism. Our microarrays also told us that there's a lot of mitochondrial damage and that the alpha-synuclein accumulation in these eggers is causing bursts of reactive oxygen species. So we then did a chemical library, the screen for things that would suppress. And what we did was we screened 150,000 compounds um, over at the Harvard ICCB. And uh, we asked, in this case, for restoration of toxicity in that really high toxicity, sorry, amelioration of toxicity and that really high toxicity strain, Uh, not the intermediate toxicity strain, which we screened genetically. Because genetically, we obviously found it was very complex. We're finding all sorts of different things going wrong. And so we wondered if in the higher toxicity strain, when lots and lots of things are going wrong, mitochondrial toxicity, all sorts of things are happening, would it be possible to find a compound that would rescue against that? It was a very rigorous rigorous screen, a high bar to pass. We found some compounds that did. We went that back and looked at vesicle trafficking, and it turned out that they fixed vesicle trafficking. They also fixed the mitochondrial defect. And they work in the nematode, and they work in rat neurons in culture, too. So this is an example of a t- test done in nematodes, and it's actually not easy to get drugs into these little beasts. They live out in the soil, and they have lots of drug pumps, and so you have to do things like dissolve the drugs in DMSO and all kinds of yucky things, but you can do it. And basically, what we have here is we've got uh, alpha-synuclein being expressed in the dopaminergic neurons of nematodes. Nematodes don't have a very sophisticated nervous system, but what they have is dopaminergic neurons, and they always invariably have exactly the same number of dopaminergic neurons in exactly the same position. And so, in this particular view, we always see four dopaminergic neurons in wild-type animals. When they're expressing alpha-synuclein, some of the neurons die. Some of them just don't extend their processes. Uh, actually, this is an age-related phenomenon, so they actually st- start out looking good, but then they regress. And if we treat the worms um, with one of the compounds we've got out of our yeast screen, uh, the neurons get better. And finally, we were able to take, as I mentioned, there are mitochondrial poisons. That kill uh, neurons in ways that are believed to be very closely related to Parkinsonism. And in fact, you can create uh, diseases in animal models with uh, these kinds of compounds. And in fact, humans who have accidentally encountered these compounds can get Parkinson's disease. And these are mitochondrial poisons. And um, this just simply shows you that a dish of neurons that looks like hell uh, because it's been exposed to one of these mitochondrial poisons. And this is what these neurons look like when they've been exposed to the mitochondrial poison in the presence of our compound, which we got out solely by its ability to rescue uh, yeast cells from alpha-synuclein. So I think the fact that we're able to get out both genes and compounds that matter to neurons and matter to the toxicity of alpha-synuclein in neurons indicates that what's, it's not that alpha-synuclein is killing dopaminergic neurons because there's some, something completely unique to those dopaminergic neurons. You don't have to only study the pathology process in a neuron. That it's actually alpha is causing some fundamental process that's interfacing with very, very conserved basic aspects of eukaryotic cell biology. And the question then is really, why does it hit dopaminergic neurons? What are the special vulnerabilities that make dopaminergic per- neurons particularly sensitive to this general pathology? And I think that there are many of them, and we're only beginning to understand it. But certainly, of course, neurons are very, very highly dependent upon vesicle trafficking, especially of neurotransmitters. Um, The foci of alpha-synuclein, at least we find in a yeast cell, seems to lead to a very high local concentration when those vesicles get blocked. The protein comes on and off the membranes, and then you start to form toxic oligomeric species, which do other, other types of damage to the cells. Um, There's some special vulnerability to to metal ions, which we don't yet understand, but what we can say is it's related to the uh, the misfunction of alpha-synuclein. Neurons have very, very high rates of respiration, very, very dependent upon uh, 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 mitochondria, especially dopaminergic neurons. And finally, dopamine is, in particular, a particularly dangerous neurotransmitter because it's made out in the cytoplasm, and it needs to be pumped into vesicles Uh, to prevent it from becoming toxic and decaying and causing all kinds of reactive oxygen species. And in fact, so if you have a defect in the production of vesicles in the forward trafficking of secretory vesicles, a dopaminergic neuron would be more sensitive than many neurons to that process. So um, I'm now going to turn to something different. (laughs) Um, I'd like to tell you about what we've been doing with A-beta toxicity. But before I do, I'm going to first have a very brief foray into prions. And you'll see why. Because there's a relationship between prions and A beta that I think is important. So Eric talked about prions yesterday, I understand. And this is an animal suffering from the prion disease known as scrapie. It's a disease that's caused by the misfolding of a protein. The protein is actually the infectious agent in the disease it misfolds and causes other proteins of the same type to misfold too and that can be spread as an infectious agent it turns out that yeast cells have prions as well and we've my lab has worked quite a bit on these these red cells and these white cells are genetically absolutely identical the difference between them is that these white cells have one particular protein in an altered prion conformation and that Alteration in protein folding is self-perpetuating. It's self-templating and self-perpetuating. And so it actually serves as an element of genetic inheritance. These cells inherit this in a very, very orderly way. And there are, uh, are actually systems, the reason I got into this is because the protein I've been working on called Hsp104 is actually a device that's employed to partition these aggregates into daughter cells and make sure that the cells inherit it in a very orderly way. Now, this doesn't just change cells from red to white. It creates all kinds of wonderful phenotypes in these cells and does all kinds of interesting things. We actually have found 25 prions in yeast, and I know Eric conveyed to you the message that prions can be great. (laughs) They're not just terrible. Uh, And we think prions are great in yeast, and um, I'm I'm not going to go into any of that. I'm just mentioning prions for one reason. These are uh, little foci of prion aggregates that are you can see being inherited by the mother cells to the daughters. And what those foci really are is amyloid fibers. And of course, amyloids figure heavily in all of these different neurodegenerative diseases. And we found that if we could uh, purify this protein in the soluble form, it would assemble in a test tube, slowly, very inefficiently, but if we took a very small bit of the pre-assembled protein and added it to the start of a new reaction, it would do that. So the ability of this protein amyloid to self-template itself is extremely, extremely efficient, and that's what allows you to have these two different states. It's hard for the protein to get into the amyloid state, so mostly it's soluble, but when it gets into the amyloid state, it stays in that state and gets passed on and inherited. Well, very early on, years ago, we found that there was a very odd mechanism of polymerization for this protein. It assembles into an oligomeric species, a molten oligomeric species. It's a natively unfolded protein, rather like alpha-synuclein. If you purify the protein and put it into a physiological buffer, it's natively unfolded. forms these molten oligomeric species, and they then assemble into amyloids. And shortly after we published that paper, it was the fact that A-beta assembles in a very similar way was described. And then Charlie Glabe did something amazing. He made an antibody against the oligomeric form of A-beta that does not recognize the monomer or the amyloid. It recognizes something about the conformation of the oligomer. And oddly enough, it recognizes something about the conformation of oligomeric species seen with alpha-synuclein and several other proteins that are associated with neurodegenerative disease. So there's some common conformation in this oligomeric species, which many people now are beginning to believe is really the most toxic form in all of these diseases. And I call it Charlie's uh, magic antibody because if you take reactions out of our yeast assembly at various times, this yeast prion, which has not anything even remotely related in sequence to the A-beta protein, that antibody does not recognize the monomers, it recognizes an oligomeric species that begins to assemble and very quickly converts to amyloid, and the antibody no longer recognizes the amyloid. So there is something about the conformations of these proteins that are natively unfolded and can get into amyloids where, where they dwell in, a, in an oligomeric species that has some mysterious property that's, that's common amongst them. So why aren't the yeast amyloids that I'm telling you about, I'm telling you prions are good in yeast, why aren't they toxic? The reason is because they very efficiently assemble into amyloids. And in fact, if we, whoops, I'm supposed to be talking now, it looks like. <laughs> uh, they very efficiently assemble into amyloids, and if we do things that cause them not to assemble very well, they become very toxic. So the basic message then is that ye- this, this problem in protein folding is as ancient as the hills. These same types of misfolding forms accumulate in yeast cells as well as in higher neurons. And so it might seem reasonable, not so unreasonable, that we could maybe take a look at the toxicity and the things that affect the toxicity of A beta in a yeast cell. So how do we do that? Well, uh, oops. Yeah. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, know that A beta is actually made from a much larger precursor col- protein called APP uh, that appears first, of course, in the endoplasmic reticulum and then traffics through the Golgi. Goes into various secretory vesicles, winds up being secreted from the cell. A beta can be secreted. The APP in its un- unprocessed form can come back in and be endocytosed. A beta can be generated in endocytic compartments and in the lysosome. It's, it's very complicated trafficking, and no one really knows quite where all of the toxic stuff is. Although certainly stuff out in the plasma membrane matters a lot. So how do we uh, replicate this in a yeast cell? We don't want to deal with the processing of APP. So what we do is we take A-beta and put a secretory signal on it. So that gets A-beta expressed in the ER. And then it gets cleaved. And it has no retention signal on it. So it will start to migrate to the Golgi. It will go to secretory vesicles. It will get out to the plasma membrane. And here's an extra advantage of the yeast cells. They've got a cell wall. So that keeps the A-beta local. It keeps it at a high local concentration to the plasma membrane, and it doesn't just float away. And that allows it to come back in by endocytosis and appear in various compartments of this this very vast secretory compartments of the cell. So we do an unbiased screen of 6,000 yeast genes for things that modify toxicity. And these are the genes that we found that have high, very close human homologs. Um, We find three genes involved in clathrin-mediated endocytosis. Uh, Very interestingly, this gene here is the uh, third highest hit on the human genome-wide arrays for alleles associated with risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, It's been replicated in 11 different genome-wide array studies in both sporadic and familial AD. Uh, this gene right here, uh, there was a new study of Alzheimer's disease alleles, uh, which popped out two additional genes involved in endocytosis. And this gene right here is the direct partner protein of one of those other genes, which uh, polymorphisms are associated with early onset AD in people. Uh, and we have also uh, unpublished two, actually there's a total now of five different genes in this, gene list that um, look like they might be associated, polymorphisms are associated with early onset uh, Alzheimer's disease. Some of them are still a little bit iffy, but three of them are pretty damn good. So uh, we created to see whether or not we could duplicate the effects of these genes in a glutamatergic neuron, a, a neuron known as cell type that's related to AD. Uh, we expressed A beta in the glutamatergic neurons of the nematode. And what you see here, we've marked them with GFP, and you see a certain number of neurons all the time in those n- worms. But when they're expressing A-beta, you see fewer of those neurons. And it's an age-related thing. So at three days, about, only about 50% of the worms have the normal number of neurons. At seven days, only about 30% have the normal number of w- neurons. So this is an age-related decline. And if we co-express M-Cherry or Lexi, nothing happens. But if we co-express our endocytosis suppressors, they suppress. We co expressed three other un- unrelated suppressors in different pathways, two of which are, seem, have connections with g- human genome-wide arrays. They suppress. And if we express an enhancer, it enhances. So every gene we've tested in the nematode affects the uh, toxicity of A beta in these lunaturgic neurons in the same way as it does in yeast. Finally, we went to rat cortical neurons. Um, there, there aren't very good models for studying uh, A beta toxicity, but one of the things that people do is they assemble the A beta into oligomers and stick them onto neurons, and neurons seem to be dying in ways that might be related to AD. There has been actually been many very good demonstrations of that, but at least one gene, ApoE, has been demonstrated to affect the toxicity of A beta applied in this way. And now we find that uh, if cells are exposed to vehicle alone with GFP or p column, there's no difference. But uh, if we expose them to A-beta oligomers, the cortical neurons are, are drastically affected and GFP has no effect. But PCOM rescues a dosage-dependent manner. So PCOM has been, although it's been very, very highly validated in, in these human GWA arrays for Alzheimer's disease, uh, it's been thought to actually work by effect, it's, since it's a gene involved in endocytosis, it's been thought to work by affecting the pro, the trafficking of APP. But we're not expressing APP, we're expressing A-beta. So we, as we show here, it's directly involved in modifying the toxicity of A-beta in a yeast cell and in a neuron. So now we can return to yeast cells and actually ask, what's what's the mechanism? There's two obvious things you can think about. One is, it could just be that the stuff is on the plasma membrane, that's bad. You want endocytosis and dump- dump it into the lysosome or the vacuole to get rid of it. So you want to upregulate endocytosis. That's interesting, but it's not not terribly sophisticated. But what if instead it might be that A beta actually is specifically toxic to the endocytic machinery? And the reason why you need to upregulate endocytosis is to cope with the primary toxicity induced by A beta. So to look at that, we looked at a... uh, a membrane receptor that's normally involved in uh, binding to mating uh, pheromone on the surface of yeast cells, and in the absence of mating pheromone, endocytosis takes it and dumps it into the vacuole. And you can see that when you tag it with GFP. What happens when you express a beta? The vacuolar trafficking of this receptor, membrane plasma membrane receptor, is profoundly uh, disturbed. Our modifiers restore, not completely, but restore uh, significantly the trafficking of that receptor. And then, interestingly, these two genes should be working in rather different ways. They both work on clathrin-mediated endocytosis, but one of them is involved in increasing the production of clathrin-mediated vesicles, and the other is involved in getting those clathrin-mediated vesicles uh, to the next target, the target membrane, and uh, uncoated. In fact, when we uh, look at cells in which we've monitoring the clathrin, clathrin itself, we see that A-beta screws up clathrin trafficking, and uh, one of the the modifiers fixes that trafficking defect by increasing the amount of clathrin-mediated, coated vesicles, and the other one increases the flow to that uh, pathway uh, by uh, increasing the uncoating of the vesicles. Anyway, this is just to finish up very, very quickly now. We've screened 120,000 compounds for things that will restore viability to yeast cells expressing A-beta. And uh, we have gotten quite a few moderate strength suppressors. A few go as high as rescuing 50% of cell growth. Um, Several of them also work in the nematode to rescue from the glutamatergic uh, neuron-induced cell death uh, of A-beta. One works in a mouse AD model and restores both, uh, reduces pathology and restores cognition. Uh, and we haven't done that work. Actually, it turns out that our yeast screen has hit a compound that the laboratory of, uh, of Ashley Bush and Rudy Tanzi have been working on. is actually currently in clinical trials. It's actually the only thing currently in clinical trials that is believed to modify the toxicity of A beta itself. And it's uh, a compound that I don't think it's got, got a long history of toxic effects and all sorts of other things. I don't think it has a lot of legs on it in the long term because, in fact, also in our yeast cells, it, it, it rescues the yeast cells quite nicely, but it's a very delicate balance in, the, in how much of it you add because it will then, it then cause cell death. But We have a few compounds that actually have a fairly broad range where we can suppress toxicity and add them at tenfold higher concentrations and they don't to- cause toxicity. So. I'm hoping that this is just the tip of the iceberg. I really think that being able to use yeast model systems and platforms for discovery for doing high throughput analyses and then going back to neurons and then taking things from neurons and bringing them back to yeast and trying to figure out how they might work uh, could be used and applied to a variety of other of these protein misfolding diseases. And I'd like very, very especially to thank the students and postdocs in my laboratory did all of this work, um, and especially I, and I've had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful group of people in my laboratory. I especially thank Tiago Utiro who tackled the alpha synuclein project. When not only was everybody from outside labs telling us we were crazy, but the people in my own lab were telling him he was crazy. What the heck are you doing? Uh, and uh, Anil Kashikar and Aaron Gitler did all of the high throughput screening on that model. Julie Sue. Uh, worked on the, the compounds. Uh, and these folks worked on other aspects of the project that I haven't told you about. These are the folks that are working on the A-beta modeling yeast. And these is our amazing, wonderful, wonderful group of collaborators, without whose help we um, really couldn't be where we are. So uh, I'd like to thank you again for listening. Susan Lindquist, PhD, was one of the 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.